Recently, while in India, Hillary Clinton shared her analysis of the results of the 2016 presidential election as determined by the Electoral College. Let's listen. If you look at the map of the United States, there's all that red in the middle where Trump won. I win the coasts, I win, you know, Illinois and Minnesota, places like that. But what the map doesn't show you is that I won the places that represent two-thirds of America's gross domestic product. So I won the places that are optimistic, diverse, dynamic, moving forward, and his whole campaign, Make America Great Again, was looking backwards. You know, you didn't like black people getting rights, you don't like women, you know, getting jobs, you don't want to, you know, see that Indian American succeeding more than you are. Whatever your problem is, I'm going to solve it. Previously, she and Anderson Cooper had this conversation regarding the Electoral College. In the book, um, you make no attempt to hide your displeasure about the Electoral College. You say on page 386, you say the godforsaken Electoral College. <laughs> uh, you mentioned winning the popular vote, obviously, yeah. multiple times yeah. in the book. Yes, do you think the Electoral College should be abolished? I said that in 2000, after what happened to uh, the 2000 election with Al Gore. I was elected to the Senate that same year, and if you look at our recent history, we've had several uh, uh, candidates, nominees, who have won the popular vote and lost the Electoral College. What does that say? And it says that an anachronism that was designed for another time uh, no longer works. If we've moved toward one person, one vote, that's how we select winners. I was amused after the French elections when I was listening to an interview with a French electoral expert, and he said, well, unlike your country, the person who wins the most votes wins. So I think it needs to be uh, eliminated. I'd like to see us move beyond it, yes. But it's not just Hillary bashing the Electoral College. In a tweet from Donald Trump on 11-6-2012, the future president said, quote, the Electoral College is a disaster for a democracy, quote. Which is actually true, but I hope by now he understands that he is the president of a republic, not a democracy. If he's not sure, perhaps he should listen to the Free to Be Free podcast, episode 15, Democracy is Dangerous. At any rate, you are likely familiar with the fact that Hillary Clinton won the majority of the popular national vote in 2016, but Donald Trump won the election because of the Electoral College system. So, I'll bet Donald Trump is loving the Electoral College now. This outcome has raised some initiatives to do away with the Electoral College system. And, in a related story, the NFL has announced that the New England Patriots will be declared the Super Bowl 52 champs because, after further review, despite the Philadelphia Eagles outscoring the Patriots 41-33, the Patriots gained 613 yards compared to 538 total yards of offense for the Eagles. <laughs> This is the Free to be Free podcast, encouraging you to assert your liberty because you are free to be free.
But why don't we start by taking a look at how prevalent this problem really is. There have been five cases of individuals running for president, winning the popular vote, but losing in the Electoral College. And those are Andrew Jackson in 1824. He lost to John Quincy Adams. Samuel Tilden in 1876, who lost to Rutherford B. Hayes. Grover Cleveland in 1888, who lost to Benjamin Harrison. Al Gore in 2000, who lost to George W. Bush. And Hillary Clinton, who lost, of course, to Donald Trump in 2016. So really, there are only two recent cases of this phenomenon. In fact, we went for an entire century, the 1900s, without this occurring. So the problem with the current push to abolish the Electoral College is that it is a reaction by some to a political outcome which they do not like. However, simply changing the rules to a method that appears to favor your candidate does not guarantee that your candidate would have won under the revised rules. This is because the behavior of all candidates would have changed by taking best advantage of the new rules, and the outcome is really unpredictable. So how about a little background on the Electoral College? It's a system devised by our founders in an attempt to avoid the pitfalls of a popular democratic election of the president. They intentionally chose to avoid an election of the president by popular vote because of the dangers of democracy. Now, James Madison's original idea in the Virginia plan was to have the members of the House of Representatives selected by popular vote by congressional district. This would mean multiple independent elections to fill the House of Representatives. Madison's proposal would then have the House of Representatives select senators, and then the House and the Senate would elect a president. With this method that Madison initially proposed, there was a concern that the president would be beholding to the House and Senate for his or her election, which would lead to some corrupt dealings. But again, they did not trust popular Democratic election, so they devised a special electorate in place of the House and Senate for the sole purpose of selecting the president. What the framers settled on was a Senate composed of two senators per state selected by the respective state legislatures. And by the way, the selection of senators was changed to popular votes within each state by the 17th Amendment in 1913. But for the president, the idea was that each state would select trusted electors to evaluate the presidential candidates and select the best candidate. There would be the same number of these special electors as the number of representatives and senators, and they would be apportioned to the states in the same manner as the representatives and senators. It was felt that this type of arrangement would avoid the shady deal-making that could arise from presidential election by the House and the Senate. Since the electors serve only the purpose of electing the president, they have no other political power with which to offer corrupt bargains. And this is the Electoral College as we know it today. The procedures for the Electoral College are found in the Constitution, of course, in Article 2, Section 1, Paragraphs 2 and 3. 
and are modified by the 12th Amendment to allow for separate voting for the president and the vice president. Prior to the 12th Amendment, each elector would vote for two candidates, and one of those could not be from the elector's state. The top vote-getter would be president, and the second-highest vote-getter would serve as vice president. With the advent of political parties and parties putting forth a ticket for president and vice president, in practice, this became a mess, as was evidenced when Thomas Jefferson and his vice presidential running mate, Aaron Burr, received the same number of votes. This meant the tie had to be settled by a Congress controlled by the opposing party without much incentive for picking a winner. Instead of going into all the details, let's just say it was messy. Now also it's important to note that amendments 14, 15, 19, 23, and 26 all modified the voting process so that now all citizens 18 and older have voting rights and Washington, D.C. now participates in the Electoral College. So when you vote for a presidential candidate, even though you select a candidate, you are actually voting for an elector who is pledged to vote for that specific candidate. So here are some of the basics of the process as we know it today. There are 538 total electors, which means you need to get 270 electors to win. The Apportionment Act of 1911 is what established our current number of electors at 538. The result is that there are 51 separate popular elections to select electors, and this makes it very difficult to tamper with the election process. As you may know, the election process is controlled at the state level. And of course, we vote for our electors in November, but the electors don't meet until December to actually select a president and vice president. Now, ties are settled in the House in the case of the president and in the Senate in the case of the vice president. One of the great beauties of the electoral process is that it necessitates national campaigning. So the candidates can't just focus on large population areas. They actually have to pay attention to the whole country. So imagine if we had election of the president by popular vote, there'd be no more attention paid to the Iowa caucus or the early New Hampshire primary. Now I know some of you may think that's a good thing, but it's very important that the Electoral College makes sure that presidential candidates have to focus on the entire country and not just those high population areas. Now the legislature of each state gets to determine how their electors are chosen and allocated. For most states, the winner of the statewide popular vote is awarded all electors for the state. The two exceptions to this are Maine and Nebraska, where two electors are awarded based on the winner of the statewide popular vote, and the remaining electors are awarded based on congressional district. Now, it may seem odd that nearly all states award electors based on popular vote, yet we do not use a national popular vote to select the president. The important element here is that there are 51 separate elections, and regardless of how each state decides on the allocation of its electors, it's those 51 individual elections combined that determine who is the president. 
Now, as I mentioned, when you vote for a candidate, you're actually voting for an elector who is pledged to vote for that candidate. So what if an elector breaks the pledge for whom they are committed to vote? In that case, they're called a faithless elector. The largest number of faithless electors in a single election is six in the election of 1808 when James Madison defeated Charles Pickney. In our entire history, there have been a total of 80 faithless electors. Now, there are 30 states, including the District of Columbia, that require electors to vote for their pledged candidate. But most of these states, around 21, do not provide for any penalty or a mechanism to prevent the deviant vote from counting as cast. There are only five states that provide a penalty for some sort of unfaithful vote, and six states provide for the vote to be canceled and the elector to be replaced. So those are some of the specifics on the workings of the Electoral College. But what is really important to remember is that the Electoral College is an ingenious system designed to protect the Republic from the tyranny of the majority, which the founders feared as much as they feared the tyranny of a king. It's critical to understand that the United States is not a democracy. Most criticisms of the Electoral College start with the false assumption that the United States is a democracy. And Donald Trump's tweet that the Electoral College is a disaster for a democracy is a perfect example of this. Finally, let's briefly look at a current effort to circumvent the Electoral College. It's called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, or NPV for short. The plan is to have states enter into an agreement to award their electors to the winner of the national popular vote. This is taking advantage of the fact that each state gets to choose how to allocate its electors. So once states totaling the required 270 electors sign on, the compact takes effect. Currently, 12 states have joined the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. They are Maryland, New Jersey, Illinois, Hawaii, Washington, Massachusetts, the District of Columbia, Vermont, California, Rhode Island, New York, and Connecticut. And their total electoral votes represented now in the NPV Interstate Compact is 172. So, Let's imagine that back in 2004, the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact was in effect. For California, John Kerry won 6.7 million votes to George Bush's 5.5 million votes in California. This means that John Kerry won 1.2 million more votes in the state of California, but since George Bush won the national popular vote, all 55 electoral votes for California would be allocated to George Bush, despite losing by 1.2 million votes in California. I would have to think there would be 6.7 million really upset voters in California if that happened. And I would also imagine that faithless electors would become a much bigger problem. 
It was in April of 2007 that the NPV Interstate Compact Movement got its first state, and that was Maryland. Since then, they have steadily added states up until 2014 when New York joined in. But since then, only one state has been added, and that's Connecticut, in May of 2018. So it seems that the movement has lost a little bit of steam, and I suspect it's going to be pretty difficult from here for them to gain additional states. And even if the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact became a reality, I'm sure it would face a number of constitutional court challenges. The NPV process also faces a challenge from the 14th Amendment. Now, I'm going to read from the 14th Amendment, but I'm going to chop it up a little bit to make it a little bit more understandable. So, Section 2 of the 14th Amendment reads, But when the right to vote at any election for the choice of electors for President and Vice President of the United States is denied to any of the qualified voters of the state or is in any way abridged, the basis of representation therein shall be reduced in proportion to the number of such voters shall bear to the whole number of voters in the state. It's a little convoluted and tough to uh, get without reading through it a couple times. I'd suggest you pull out a copy of the Constitution and read Section 2 of the 14th Amendment. Basically what it's saying is if the right of the voters is abridged in any way, that state could lose representation in proportion to the number of voters whose votes were abridged. Now think of that California case I gave you with George Bush and John Kerry. I would say 1.2 million votes abridged is a pretty serious problem. So in the end, the national popular vote movement looks like it has little chance of going into effect. Now, regular listeners to this podcast know that our focus is primarily on the Convention of States project. So, what does this all have to do with the Convention of States? Fortunately, not much. A proposed amendment to abolish the Electoral College is not within the scope of the Convention of States application. If you remember, we're calling for proposed amendments that place fiscal restraints on the federal government, and abolishing the Electoral College certainly doesn't fit in that area. Secondly, limiting the power and scope and jurisdiction of the federal government, and no, an elimination of the Electoral College would not fit under that requirement. And finally, amendments that would propose term limits, and clearly this has nothing to do with term limits. So, Secretary Clinton, the Electoral College is not, as you characterize it, an anachronism designed for another time. It is just another one of the ingenious components of the Constitution devised by the founders to protect our rights and freedoms. And I would have to say, thankfully, it's here to stay. This is the Free to be Free podcast. I'm Paul Phillips. The opinions expressed are my own. You can learn more about the Convention of States project at conventionofstates.com. 
You can also find the Convention of States Project on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. The first thing that you'll want to do at conventionofstates.com is to learn the issue for yourself. Then you'll want to sign the petition to let your state legislators know that you are ready to assert your liberty through an Article 5 Convention of the States. Until next time, stay free, my friends.